Glad to have you this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 18, and we're going to finish the chapter, verse 29. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and uh, Dr. Kevin will bring one right to your seat. So, just what the doctor prescribes, a Bible. There you go. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaking to the Apostle John, tells him, verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations." He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The title of my message this morning is Thyatira, the Corrupted Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together. We thank you for your word, Lord. It is just what you know that we need for our lives. And as we dig into it, Lord, we pray through your Holy Spirit that you'll give us understanding of what is being said in this passage, that we might apply your truth to our hearts, Lord, that we might gain wisdom from it, Lord, that we might know how to love you better, serve you more uh, fervently, Lord, and live for you. Uh, Lord, until you take us home. We thank you, Lord, for the grace you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, for this church and being able to gather together. Lord, I know of many churches in California that they're trying to shut down because they're gathering together inside. And, uh, Lord, they've been fined. And even this morning I heard of a church that was going to be fined again. And, Lord, they're facing persecution. And and many of them are Calvary chapels. And, and Lord, they're, they're standing upon your word. And, what your word says, and I pray for them. We pray for them, and we thank you, Lord, for the grace you've shown us that we can gather together uh, this morning. We ask your blessing upon our time. Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again, they don't know you as their Lord and as their Savior, would you especially touch their heart this morning, help them to see their need for you, turn from their sin, and be born again today. Thank you for this time. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, as you know, today we have the mask mandate that says in order to help control the spread of the coronavirus, we must wear a mask. Regardless how you feel about it, you've got to say that people have come up with some pretty ingenious ways and ideas in wearing masks. I found a few on the Internet that I thought was kind of funny. First one is for the auto mechanic. He's got it covered. Nothing's getting through that, let me tell you. How about the dairy farmer? He's got this one covered. Just take the cap off. You can drink with the straw, put it back in. Works out pretty good. How about for a vegetable farmer? A little head of cabbage works. Cabbage head. Those of us in the Midwest, our favorite mass would probably be these. Bacon. Notice there's five of them because you just can't eat just one. You just finish one and go to the next one. A couple more for good measure. Here's the shark mask. I thought that was sweet. I like that one. And finally, I don't know why anyone would wear a mask like this, but here it is. You know, they tell us that by wearing a mask is going to help stop the spread of the virus. I think I'd rather have the virus than wear a mask like that. I'm, I'm just saying. But here's what we know. People still get sick with masks on. And here in Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at a church that was wearing the mask of being okay on the outside, but it was very, very sick on the inside. It was a very corrupt church. It's called the Church of Thyatira. Now, if you're taking notes, I want to point out four of them this morning. Number one, the commendation. Number two, the condemnation. Number three, the consequences. And number four, the challenge. Now, you're probably tired of me saying this, but let's not forget that there are four applications, four different ways to apply these messages to the churches that the Lord has given to us. First and foremost, they're applied historically. There were actual seven churches in Asia that these letters were being sent to churches that were taking place at that time. They're applied prophetically. We have an overview of church history from the beginning of the, the first church there on Pentecost all the way to the return of the Lord at the rapture of the church. Thirdly, they're applied practically. They teach us a lot about church life. Almost every problem, difficulty, every challenge we face as a Christian, they're addressed in these seven letters. And fourthly, and most significantly to us as individually, they are applied personally. These are words that Jesus wants to say to each one of us here this morning to apply these truths to our lives and how he wants us to live. Now, historically speaking, the church in Thyatira was the smallest church, yet with the most things that Jesus had to say about it. It was the longest message from the Lord. And what we see is that Jesus still has a lot to say to a church that has gone bad. Thyatira's claim to fame, if you would, was a red dye that they would market, they would use to, to make designer clothes of the ancient world, and they would extract this purple dye from a small shellfish. They would cut it open and then cut the throat from this little fish, shellfish, where a little drop of purple would come out, and that's what they would use as purple dye. It was really a cutthroat business at that time. Very expensive one at that. Because it took so much of this purple goo uh, to make a garment of that. Only the wealthy had the purple garments. This church 
in Thyatira actually may have been started from a testimony of a woman. We know according to Acts chapter 16 that there was a woman from Thyatira named Lydia who came to faith there in Philippi from the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel to her. But we also know, as we just read and we'll look at a little further, is that it's evident that the testimony of a woman caused the church to fracture from within. Now, prophetically speaking, for some, this might be a little bit uncomfortable and sobering because Thyatira represents the church age prophetically when the Roman Catholic Church really became strong. It runs from A.D. 600 all the way to the end of the church age. It covers a time known as the Dark Ages, when the word of God was taken away from the people and the people fell under the authority of the popes. Now, it's for that reason, before we get into the study, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. We're going to address some things, bad things, that had happened within the Roman Catholic Church. But know that next week in our next study, we're going to be looking at some of the bad things that has happened within the Protestant church. So it's, it's equal time. Now, we're also going to be looking at the good things within the church because that's exactly what Jesus did. Every church except the church of Laodicea, Jesus had something good to say about them. And it's important to praise uh, the good, but it's equally as important to give us a description of the bad so that we don't go down that path And these bad things don't creep into our church and into our own lives. And remember, the Thyatira type of church could be any church that practices the same things that Jesus is going to talk about, not just the Roman church. So with that said, Jesus begins his letter to this church, as he did others, with a description of himself. Look at verse 18. And to the angel, or as we've looked at or noted in the past, to the pastor of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. Now this is the first time in the book of Revelation that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. Earlier he described himself as the Son of Man, a phrase borrowed from the book of Daniel. But now Jesus' authority is highlighted through his deity. Because this message Jesus is about to give is that of judgment. So he's reminding the listeners, the readers, of his authority to judge. Sometimes we forget that Jesus has the right to judge us, to chasten us, to discipline us. You know, when, when my kids were young, I didn't ask them permission to discipline them. <laughs> I didn't say, is it okay if I spank you now? I just want to make sure it's okay with you. I know what they would say. No, it's not. It wasn't my responsibility to ask them. It was my responsibility, though, to discipline them because I'm their father and I love them and that's my job. And so Jesus here gives his authority. I'm the son of God who has the eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. And then really the description of himself is speaking of judgment. The penetrating eyes of Jesus that says, I know what's going on here. His eyes are like a flame of fire. speaks of purity and the holiness of God. His feet like fine brass. Brass is a metal that speaks of judgment. So here we see the judge stepping up in judgment. But again, before he gets to that, he's going to commend them for some good things that were going on with this church. And that's our first point again, the commendation. Look at verse 19. He tells them, I know your works, love, service, 
faith and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than your first. I commend you on the fact that there's a work going on in your church that doesn't cease. You continue to do good works. And he commends them on their motives behind their works, which was love. What they did, what they were doing was out of love. Now, that's the opposite to what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. They had lost their first love. They have left their first love. Jesus had to tell them to return to it. But Jesus says to this church, you still have it, and that's good. I know there's love there. I know that the works you are doing there are there because of the love you have one for another. When you walked into this church, you just sensed it back then. It was evident. People got along. You know, they loved one another. The majority of the members were not at each other's throat, but they were on each other's heart. And Jesus said that would be a mark of, of his disciples. By this, all will know that you are my disciple if you have loved one for another. John thirteen thirty five. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So there was this love internally, as well as there was love, you know, in this church externally. They reached out to people. They wanted to see people get saved. They wanted to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. There was no apathy setting in within the church when it came to getting the message out, when it came to inviting people to church. And so Jesus commends them for that. He acknowledges it in verse 19. I know your works, your love. And then he says, I know your service. Listen, love leads to service. If you love God, you're going to want to serve his people. You can't help it. This word for service here comes from the Greek word diakonia, which speaks of ministry. It speaks of giving certain attention to, to, to certain needs. It's a similar word to the word deacon, which implies ministry. See, in this church, there was more than just church activities going on. There was real, honest-to-goodness ministry happening here. Now, many churches today, they can be described as being very busy churches, a lot of activities, but really none in the way of ministry. A lot of things going on, but not really the important life-changing things. One person illustrated this by the saying that goes, they bowl for blessings on Monday, jog for Jesus on Tuesday, eat in the kitchenette and endure sermonette on Wednesday, home runs for heaven on Thursday, golf for glory on, for glory on Friday, and spread the table to stay able on Saturday. Now, you know, I like all those activities, but Jesus has never really been impressed by our activity alone. What Jesus commands, what impresses him and blesses him, is when ministry takes place. Everything a church should do should, should have ministry as its focus. And we certainly see that in this church in Thyatira. Their motive in their ministry was love. Their, their ministries of their works were service. But not, not only that, their maintaining of their works. Verse 19 says, it was through faith and patience. He says, I know your faith and your patience. That word faith carries the idea of faithfulness, fidelity, loyalty. These folks, they were, they were faithful. They weren't fickle. They weren't hopping around from church to church trying to find the next new thing. They were faithful to serve in the family of God that God called them to be a part of. And they were enjoying it. They were involved in it. Always looking how they can, can serve better in ministry that God's called them to do. 
Not satisfied with the status quo, but what more can I do for the ministry that God has called me to be a part of? How can I do the ministry that God's called me to be a part of better? What improvements can I make? doesn't matter how long you've been a part of the ministry. Always looking to see what more I can do. And I look at these Christians here in the church of Thyatira, and Jesus is commending them for sticking to it, for being patient with one another and taking care of one another in the body of Christ, doing the work of the ministry. Good job, Jesus says. So their motive for their work was love. The ministry of their work was service. They maintained an attitude of faith and patience throughout. Very commendable. But Jesus isn't done. He's got even one more thing to commend them on. He says, the measure of their works in verse 19, he says, the last are more than the first. Did you catch that? The last are more than the first. You know, one thing that is impressive is that this was a church that was growing and, and there was more growth in the end than there was in the beginning. You know, it's good to, it's good to have a good ending. Maybe some of you guys didn't have a real great beginning. Maybe you came to faith late in Christ. Uh, maybe, quite honestly, you've thrown some away some of those precious years chasing after silly, silly things. But now you've come to your senses. And here's the good news. You could still get in the race and finish well. Better to not have a great beginning but have a great ending than to have a great beginning and, and a bad ending, only to crash and burn. Best yet to have a good beginning and a great ending. In other words, again, we need to be involved. We need to be busy doing what God has called us to do. And don't let age or excuses rob you from what God would want to do in your life. I like what Psalm 92, verse 12 through 14 says. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. I love it. There it is. We're told as we get old, we can be fat and flourishing. It's right, right there. I read it there. You can read it yourself. So I can go off my diet and just tell people, hey, I'm just doing what Psalm 92 says. Tell me what to do. Actually, that word for fat doesn't mean fat physically. It speaks of well-rounded spiritual maturity, a spiritual depth. You know, the older you get in the Lord, the more valuable you become. Because you've had a history with the Lord. And you have a lot to offer to those that are young in the faith because you have a track record. You can say, man, I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what you're going through. Here's what God has showed me. You have that wisdom. You know, not just counting the years wisdom, but as the Word of God teaches us wisdom, it's applying our hearts to wisdom. You know, it's getting into the Word and the Word getting into you and as a result, you're staying busy in the work that God has called you to do and you're sticking to it. And so this is where Jesus is saying, your last is greater than when you began. They were committed. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. And that's a good thing and that should be said of all of us as believers. And it's a good thing to be commended for. And as with these other letters to the churches, don't you wish that we can just stop right there? There's not a, a but here, but we have a nevertheless. Dun, dun, dun. That's our second point, the condemnation. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Listen, 
church, as good as this church was with all the good works they were doing, it was all meaningless because of what they allowed in their lives. They're drifting off course. And now compromise has set in, not only compromise, but, but corruption has taken root. And it could happen to any one of us because the moment you begin to stop in your spiritual growth, you begin to start your decline. I think of those walkways at airports. You know, if you get on one going the other direction, you can keep it. As long as you walk fast, you can keep going. But as soon as you stop, you're being pulled in the opposite direction. That's the same way with our spiritual walk. And that's what was happening in this church. They were spiritually sick. Yeah, the church in Pergamos was compromising, but this church was past compromise. It was corrupt. They were practicing, accepting, and tolerating open sin. In fact, Jesus specifically focuses on this word tolerance in this church. In verse 20, when Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel to seduce my servant. He goes on. That word allow there is translated tolerate. Amplified Bible reads this, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, I, I think, and I think you both would agree, that we as Christians, we are very tolerant people. I think strong Christians are tolerant. But let me define our tolerance. See, we have a biblical worldview when it comes to tolerance that comes from our study of Scripture and from our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe God's word to be true. And so when we talk to someone who is not a believer, we will try to convince them. We will try to persuade them as we engage in evangelism to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We want them to believe in Jesus like we do. But we all know people that hear what we have to say and say, well, I don't agree with you. I disagree. So what do we do? Do we scream and yell at them louder? Yeah, that's going to work. Of course not. Do we assault them physically if they don't embrace Christ? No, of course we don't. Do we grab our picket signs and go to their house and say, you better accept Christ or or you're, 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 you know, whatever? No, we don't do any of that. We lovingly say, well, I disagree with the lifestyle choices you are making and I'm going to pray for you and I hope you'll come to your senses one day. That's how we tolerate that thing. In other words, we accept that though we don't agree with the choices they're making, we cannot change them. We don't harm them or slander them or put them down. That's tolerance. I don't agree with that. I don't believe in it, but I will tolerate it. But the tolerance of the world is totally different. Today in our culture, they've redefined it. When people tell you to be tolerant today, in effect, they're telling you that you are wrong and you have to accept and agree with what they are doing and saying, no if and or buts, otherwise you are classified as intolerant. And nowadays, if you take the stand against anything they disagree with, it's defined as hate speech. That's the culture we live in. You speak out and say anything against the LGBTQ or STUV, and, and, and it's considered a hate speech, even though God calls it sin. Conviction is called fanaticism. Biblical truths that the churches have believed for centuries are now regarded as discrimination and people are going to come after you even to the point of trying to force you to shut down your church. 
To stand upon the word of God today and say, this is what the Bible teaches and this is why I don't agree with what you're saying. In their eyes, you've suddenly become intolerant, racist, a bigot, and should be shut down. Here's the problem. A lie is still a lie, no matter how many times you repeat it. It's still a lie. It never becomes truth. And the truth is still truth, no matter how many times you repeat a lie, truth is still truth. And there are times when you and I, we're going to be intolerant. Listen, we're intolerant when it comes to science. At sea level, water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. doesn't boil at 210. doesn't boil at 189. It's always 212. You know, fresh water freezes at 32 degrees. doesn't freeze at 35 or 45 at 32 degrees. We are intolerant when it comes to mathematics. Two plus two still equals four, not three and a half. I'm intolerant on that. The truth is truth. We're intolerant when it comes to geometry. A straight line is the shortest distance between two points on a plane. We're intolerant when it comes to physics. Gravity. What goes up comes down. Listen, the same thing is true spiritually when it comes to God's word. We are intolerant when it comes to salvation. Jesus said the road to salvation is a narrow road in Matthew 7.13. Enter, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Those are Jesus' words. Listen, we're, we are intolerant when it comes to the kingdom of God. John 3, 3, most assuredly, Jesus said, I, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I, the, the truth is truth. We are intolerant when it comes to the way of salvation. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, John fourteen six. We are intolerant when it comes to the word of God. Jesus prayed to the Father, John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You see, it's the word of God that matters most. I think I'm going to start a new group. Instead of calling it All Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, I'm just going to call it The Word of God Matters. Print up t-shirts and, and you know, wear those, put up hats, and I, I don't know. Because that's what truly matters. What does God say? It's His truth that we must abide by. Listen, we should be totally intolerant when it comes to what the Bible calls sin. In fact, Christ was so intolerant towards sin that He died on the cross to free men and women from its power. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, the world's problems will never be solved until the question of sin is settled. And the cross is God's answer to sin. To all who will receive the blessed news of salvation through Christ, it crosses out, it cancels forever sin's power. So to say that we have to not only be tolerant towards sin, but to openly embrace and agree with and participate in what God calls sin, we just cannot do that. And for that we will be intolerant. But that's not what the church of Thyatira was doing. They were tolerating sin, and so Jesus says, I'm intolerant of your tolerance. And then he brings up in verse 20 the reason for his intolerance. He says, you allow this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't know if this was the actual Jezebel that that he was talking about, referring to, 
or he was just maybe using the name as a sort of a metaphor for wickedness. We know that there was a Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament. We know that she married King Ahab. We know that she was extremely wicked. And we know that she actually endorsed 850 false prophets. She was responsible for putting the Lord's prophets to death. She was teaching that immorality was not such a serious issue. See, she herself was uh, died an untimely death being thrown from a window and eaten by dogs, which was prophesied would happen. Queen Jezebel was, in the words of the great theologian Frank Sinatra, to put it bluntly, the lady was a tramp. I mean, that's all you could say. So the Lord is saying, you are tolerating that Jezebel-like sin. Now remember, verse 18, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now to say a church as a Jezebel was saying this church has entered into idol worship. It's entered into sexual immorality. And for this actual historical church, that was happening. Again, Thyatira was known for their, for their wealth, or they're known for their commercialism. There were many different trades there. And as a result, there were trade unions, trade guilds that were there. And, and for the Christians to find work, they had to join the union, join the guild. Now, the guilds were made up of pagans. Now, obviously, because of the influence of the world, their meetings became very pagan. Many pagan practices were done during such meetings that involved all kinds of weird sexual activities and idolatry living in the Greek world at that time. But in order for them to work, they had to belong to the union, and in order to stay in the union, they had to attend those union meetings. So they faced heavy pressure to participate in the meetings, to get involved in the meetings, and really the things of the world, and and partying and sexual immorality. So it became an issue of financial liability to them. So there was this pressure. It wasn't easy for them living in Thyatira. How far could or should they go as members of the trade guilds? And as they're struggling to answer these questions, here comes this woman, standing up, claiming to have a prophecy from God, thus saith the Lord, that it is okay to practice these pagan rituals and pagan practices and this sexual immorality. It's okay to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's wrong. Now, that's historically speaking. Prophetically speaking, Thyatira represents the church age coming into the Roman church. And it was this time during the Roman Catholic Church that began to lead people into spiritual idolatry, into sexual immorality as well. Speaks of the time from the 6th to the 16th century, a thousand year time period called the Devil's Millennium, or what we know it as the Dark Ages, a very dark time. A time when the church became corrupt by combining pagan rites with Christian teaching. Many pagan practices and heathen principles were introduced into the churches during this time, but given Christian terminology. They started with the compromises. Just a little compromise here, a little compromise there, uh, under the rule of Constantine, but then it got worse. During this time, approximately 788 A.D., that's when idol worship began, the worship of the cross, worship of images, statues, relics, was introduced into the church. It was encouraged. It was a time when religious authorities were lifted up and widely sought after for counsel and direction. The Bishop of Rome came into universal acceptance and was then called the Pope. And then he began to, to, to exercise dominion and kings over all these other 
uh, over kings and emperors. In fact, this word Thyatira comes from two words meaning sacrifice and continual, or continual sacrifice. That describes very clearly what takes place during what the Roman Catholic Church calls the sacrifice of the Mass. There's this continual sacrifice in the Catholic doctrine in what is called transubstantiation. That's a word that is used to say what takes place during their communion service. They believe and they teach, and many of you know this, that the bread and the wine literally becomes a body and the blood of Jesus. And at each service, the priest has the authority through the words that he says to make this happen. It's almost like this magic spell that turns the bread into Jesus' body and the, and the wine into Jesus' blood. And that's why if you've, if you've ever been in a Catholic Mass or seen a Catholic Mass, you notice at the end of the communion service that that priest will drink every last drop of that wine and he'll eat every last bite of that bread since those elements represent the literal, they say they are the literal body of Christ and, and blood of Christ. Can't throw them out, can't throw it down the drain, can't throw it away. In fact, in the early church, if, if a priest dropped a communion host given to a person, that would mean death to the priest. Death. But it's this continual sacrifice that they preach what uh, come against and, 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 and really brings, uh, which really brings grace or salvation, which is in direct contrast to what Christ declared upon the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. The price was paid once and, and for all. Hebrews 7.27 tells us, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this, get this, he did once for all when he offered up himself. Once and for all, Jesus paid the price for our sin. So here Jesus is speaking out prophetically against the sin of sexual immorality and idol worship that's rising up into this church. And sadly, that can be traced back to the, to the early popes. In fact, the late author Dave Hunt got a great book called A Woman Rides the Beast, and it's really a history of the, of the Roman church. He points out how the road to, to being a, a pope was paved through mistresses. Six of them were put into power by a mother and a daughter pair of prostitutes. A woman named Theodore of Rome and her daughter Morosia. Theodore was the wife of this powerful Roman senator, and she would manipulate Roman politics by exploiting the fact that her daughter Morosia was a mistress of Pope Sergius III. Now, Theodore herself, she was a mistress to two popes and fell in love with a priest from Ravenna that she maneuvered to the throne, the papal throne herself. So according to that, we know that the, the prostitutes that determined who the next pope would be is, is what was going on there. Same time, this was also introduced, the idea of indulgences. So if you're going to go party, party on Saturday night, you could buy an indulgence from a priest so you can be pre-forgiven. Pre-forgiven. So I, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna do some bad things tonight. So I mean, here's ten bucks. Can you forgive me beforehand? Sadly, even leading up today, there's not only corruption within the Roman Church, but there's plenty of false teaching that is that is entered in. And, and let me give you some recent quotes that are just it's heartbreaking, really, by Pope Francis. Different subjects. He said this on atheists. I do not approach the relationship in order to proselytize or convert the atheist. I respect him. Nor would I say that his life is condemned because I am convinced that I do not have the right to make a judgment about the honesty of that person 
Every man is the image of God, whether he is a believer or not. You know, Mark 16, 15 said, and he told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Apostle John felt he had the authority to make a judgment about who's saved and who's not when he wrote in 1 John 5, 12, he who has a son has life, who does not have the son of God does not have life. That's pretty clear on who's saved and who's not. What did he say on hell? Get this one. They are not punished. Those who repent obtain the forgiveness of God and enter the rank of souls who contemplate him. But those who do not repent and cannot therefore be forgiven disappear. There is no hell. There is a disappearance of sinful souls. You know what Jesus said in Revelation 21.8? But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. How about the Trinity? Surely the Trinity. Well, he says this, I believe in God, not in a Catholic God. There is no Catholic God. There is God. And I believe in Jesus Christ, His incarnation. Jesus is my teacher and my pastor. But God, the Father, Abba, is the light and the creator. This is my being. Now, Jesus said to Philip in John 49, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And then, uh, since the Pope said that it was the Father that created everything, he needs to read Colossians 1.16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And you all know this verse. How about on Islam? He said this, We must never forget that they, the Muslims, profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us, they adore the one merciful God who will judge humanity on the last day. While people from various global faiths may be seeking God or meeting God in different ways, it is important to keep in mind that we are all children of God. So there again, he has that phrase, children of God. You know, Jesus was pretty clear that we're not all children of God. In speaking to the religious leaders of his day, he said this in John eight forty four: You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. A big difference between those and the children of God. Now, this is not the first time that the, the Pope has said something like this. Very early in his papacy, he authorized Islamic prayers and readings from the Quran in the Vatican. First Pope to ever do that. Man, it certainly seems everything is being set up. And we'll get to this later on in our study in the book of Revelation. A one world religion forming in these last days. Now, let me say this one more time. I want you to know I am not Catholic bashing, as some might suggest. This is their history. This is where it has led them to today. It's led them far away from God's word. And as I said earlier, next week we'll see the Protestant church's dark history. And please remember, Jesus had some good things to say about this church. The Roman Catholic church has great human, humanitarian practices, tremendous programs in helping the poor. They are against abortion. They have great hospitals. The works of the nuns and orphans and unwed mothers, all wonderful things that the Catholic Church has been known for. Mother Teresa's work was incredible. Many people, wonderful people who really love God in the Catholic Church, but are also not aware of what the Catholic Church teaches as doctrine. They're not aware of the darkness. They're not aware of the corruption. 
And just as the church in Thyatira was called to deal with the sin of this woman, so too the Catholic Church is being called to deal with the sin of its leadership. And they've drifted far away from biblical Christianity. On top of that, Jesus says in verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So again, Jesus is saying, uh, uh, was saying immorality is taking place in the lives of those that profess to be believers in this church, and they're not repenting of it. Listen to what Galatians 5.19 says. It says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're living a habitual life, a moral life of sin without repenting, you will not go to heaven. No exceptions to this. And this is bringing up the consequences. Point number three, look at verse 22. He says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. This verse seems to be indicating that if you continue to live that way, you're going to be left behind when the rapture takes place. And this would fit in with other scriptures that warn us that as we wait the Lord's return, we should be watching and we should be ready. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaks of the wicked servant who thinks that the master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the other servants, uh, partying and getting drunk. And Jesus says that master will return and, and cut that person off. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 40, that two will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Certainly seems to say there's going to be people that will be left behind when the Lord comes back for his church. Why? Because they're living habitual lives of corruption. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. See, there are those within this church of Thyatira who thought they could live however they want and still go to heaven. And Jesus says, on that day, they all say, I never knew you get away from me, you who break God's laws. Now he goes on, look at verse 23. He says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I'll give to each one of you according to your works. Listen, idolatry, sexual immorality, it leads to suffering. And understand when Jesus mentions the children here that he will strike with death, he's not meaning little kids. What Jesus is saying is not only will this historical church in Thyatira face certain judgment, but her offspring throughout the years, those that continue in the same practices, those even in the church today, he will strike with death. But he also says, listen, uh, he says he reminds that he'll be fair judged because he sees the minds and the hearts of everyone. You know, I have... Uh, Roman Catholic friends that, that man, I talk to them and I, I think, man, they, they certainly seem to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. I go, man, it seems like they know the Lord. and, and uh, Lord, But I don't know. But I can look to God's word and I can see Jesus go, you know what? I'm the right judge. I know. I know their hearts. I can see their hearts. And then Jesus reminds us, again, he'll be a fair judge. And then the death that is spoken of here I believe he's talking about the second death that we looked at last week in the church of Pergamos. Bottom line, Jesus is saying, 
you need to repent. Jesus always gives the opportunity for repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there will come a time when the Lord will no longer tolerate blatant, unrepentant sin. When a person's heart is so full of sin that even God in his mercy would be violating his righteousness to wait any longer. Man, and it's certainly looking like our world is turning that way very quickly. See, if a professed Christian is living in continual, habitual sin, they may think because God hasn't judged them that they'll never be judged, but they're wrong. God is long-suffering. He's also righteous. God is patient, but he will not be mocked. He will give you time to repent of your sin, to quit that habit, to forsake it. Our God will forgive you if you put your faith and trust in him. But this woman was unwilling to repent. If she would have, God would have shown his grace. This brings us to our final point, the challenge. Look at verse 24 and 25. Now to you I say, to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Now the challenge given to the church was to those who do not hold to this doctrine. They, they don't hold to what's going on there. We have to remember this was during the period that there were those in this church who loved the Lord. And they were doing many good works of love and of service. They're a part of the church. They were the true believers, but they did not give into that sexual immorality. They weren't giving in to the idol worship and the false teaching. That's why Jesus says in verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. Remember, Jesus said the motive for the work was love. The ministry of the work was service. They maintained an attitude of faith and patience throughout. Hold on to that, Jesus says, till I come. The gospel is simple. Hold fast, Jesus said, to what you have. Don't let it go. Don't move away from it. And you'll rule and reign with me in the millennial kingdom. That's what he says next. Look at verses 26 to 29. We'll close with this. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As he said before, he who overcomes. We looked at that phrase last week. It really is a definition of a true believer. The only way we overcome is through the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. We, in and of ourselves, we're not overcomers. We only overcome sin and death and compromise and worldliness to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. The victory was won through Christ on the cross. Again, no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved, only through Jesus. So Jesus is saying, hang in there, don't give up, keep looking up, hang tough, because soon and very, very soon there's a day coming where Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take us home to be with him and, and, and then we'll come back with him and we'll rule and reign with him in glory. So don't give up. Hold on to what he's given us. Hold tight so that God may continue to work in, all, in our lives in, the, in, the, in holiness and purity so that he may receive all honor and glory that's due his name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, a lot of heavy words here to take in. Lord, there's a lot of sadness when we see the departure of the faith 
and the departure from where this church began and where it is presently, Lord. And I know if it grieves our heart, it grieves your heart even more. And Father, I do pray for people that may be caught up in the deception, Lord, that just by going to church, they think they're saved. By going week after week and participating in a ritual that's going to bring them salvation. Lord, help them to see, Lord, there's no name by which we must be saved other than your Son, Jesus Christ, by putting our faith and trust in you, turning from our sin, repenting of it, and having that relationship with you. It's not about religion, Lord. It's about relationship. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that maybe has not entered into that relationship, maybe it's been a part of religion for them all their lives, but now they realize it's about a relationship with you, Jesus. I pray they would not leave here without making that commitment to you of saying, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from it today. I commit my life to you, to knowing you and serving you and knowing your word. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has that as their heart, Lord, that you touch them, that they would give their life to you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Lord, thank you for the encouragement for us to keep going, to hang tough, to not give up, to finish our race well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.